Well, Merry Christmas. You guys are getting really good at this. And then it's also going to be over and you won't be able to do it. So, one more time. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Wow, that's great. You know, I know that you're getting um, all... Probably some of you are having people who are showing up at your home and now your house is getting full and bathrooms are getting crowded and, you know, it's just this wonderful experience and, and, and you can't wait for it to be done at a certain point. But anyway... What a wonderful, wonderful season. Longtime CNN talk show host Larry King. You're familiar with him and the show that he had that went for many years. Probably has interviewed more people than anybody in history. Once stated, his favorite question is this, will you marry me? Because he'd been married eight times. Anyway, um, no, Larry King once, when mentioned that if he could interview just one person, if he could ask one question to this one person, who do you think it would be, and what do you think that question would be? That one person, he said, was Jesus Christ. And what I find interesting is this one question. He was a a Jewish man who was raised in one of the boroughs in New York. And he said that question to be, Were you Jesus born of a virgin? Are you God in flesh appearing? Literally said, the answer to that question, King said, would define history for me. Isn't that interesting? It's funny when you think about how that question of the identity of that man, Jesus, never goes away. This child that we celebrate at Christmas. You know, after you put all the, uh, all the Christmas shopping is done, the gift giving is over, and Santa heads back north to the pole to be with Mrs. Claus. Um, this question still remains, right? Who is this Jesus? Not only is it a question you can trace throughout history, but it's a question lots of people, both inside and outside the church, have. People you work with, people you rub shoulders with in a school setting or in your neighborhood and different places. And and a lot of people will wonder. You may have even wondered this yourself at one point. Why did people decide Jesus was divine and what difference does it make? Granted, most people think Jesus was probably a godly person. If you were to talk to them on the street, they would, they would tell you that, you know, some things about the love of God and, and, and Jesus came and talked about the golden rule and about being a good Samaritan and all kinds of stuff like that. But the idea that he was divine, the idea that he was the son of God, this claim that, that, that it somehow seems that the followers of Christ make that he was the second person of the Trinity, whatever that means, this sounds kind of weird to a lot of people, to some people, and may have it to you at one point, may to you right now. Why do you want a religion that unnecessarily excludes people who can't believe this stuff about Jesus? What's the big deal? You maybe heard those questions. You've maybe entertained those questions. You maybe have been asked those questions. Isn't it true that some people say all that stuff about being the Son of God actually got made up centuries after his death and people were writing in order to kind of prove some theological point and And isn't it true that when people wrote the Gospels, they would take passages from the Old Testament and kind of twist them around to make them kind of sound like they were predicting Jesus and all? You know know how that goes, and maybe you are thinking that. They're really important questions. I'm not in any way downplaying them. In fact, John in his Gospel doesn't either. What's fascinating is you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, this question of Jesus' identity is also found in all the Gospels. People were puzzled by it. Jesus even asked people, who am I? Who do they say I am? 
Because the, the disciples themselves had a hard time really seeing and understanding the identity of who Jesus was. At times the light bulb would flicker and Jesus would go, they're getting it. And at other times he wasn't sure. And even John the Baptist related to Jesus, who ushered Jesus in and said, here's the one. He looks, here's the lamb. We take away the sin of the world. At one point later on is in a prison, sitting in Herod's prison. And he says to some of his own followers, we go back to Jesus and find out, is he really the one that I thought he was? These questions of identity that they had, the Pharisees had, and the world around them, those who are close and those who are far, all have had those questions. So John, who lived with Jesus for some three years, sets out in his gospel, specifically beginning in verse 1 through that prologue and then through the rest of the gospel to make this clear. And, and John was writing at a time some 30 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So John is actually this incredibly brilliant man, I think, who is sitting back and just thinking out and, and, and looking at and, and, and working through in his mind trying to understand, just and we clearly see it. And at that time, what was happening is, is people were hearing about Jesus and the message of Jesus was going out. People had all kinds of ideas who this Jesus was. And, and one of the things was, was the early strain of a, of a line of thought called Gnosticism. We put labels on usually after it's kind of been congealed into a, a system of thought. So it wasn't really anything you could actually nail down, but there were groups of people kind of spreading out veins of, of thought that were going out and, and were saying that, yeah, Jesus was really a good man, a golden rule, all that kind of stuff, but he wasn't God. And so John writes in his first epistle, which is really creatively named, you know what it's named? Cassius? First John. Um, he begins this way. And, and, and I want you to recognize this. Remember, he begins John, his gospel, in the beginning was the word. Well, listen to what he says in the first line of his first epistle, that which is a letter to some people. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. I want you to know I experienced this guy. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have be in community with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all those who want to be in his presence so that you can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Uniquely, unlike any other gospel, John presents in some creative ways, in some unique ways, the fact that Jesus is God. Beyond what Matthew and Mark and Luke do, which they do present it, but not in the same way that John stresses the deity of Jesus. And so John begins with his first sentence, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. And if you take that sentence, it rolls itself out in those first 18 verses, which are a prologue. And then I think it's interesting, it continues this thread of thought through the next some 20 chapters. In all kinds of ways that if you don't read it as a whole, you'll never get it. In fact, N.T. Wright makes some comments about this whole thing. He says the prologue is designed to stay in the mind and the heart throughout the subsequent story. There's this idea that from this verse rolls out into the prologue, those 18 verses, so that this is said in such a way that through the rest of it, as you read it, it will flash like indicator lights, you know, like you have on your, on your dashboard. That you will see as you go through it this claim that he's seeming to make. And so John tells us three things in this prologue. Actually, really, think about it. 
over 300 things. Like, like again, like I've been saying, I have to stay focused. There's just so much, even in these 18 verses. But three specific indications regarding this truth that Jesus is God, and then throughout it, there's all kinds of implications throughout his gospel. And all we're going to do, the roadmap this morning, if we can get through it, are indications and implications of the fact that Jesus is deity. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask you to fasten your seatbelt, and I'm going to ask you to do some hard work, because you know you're going to go, well, yeah, tell me a story. No, I'm not going to be telling you a whole lot of stories. I'm just going to have you walk through, maybe at times run through, and sometimes at a high speed, and kind of lay out for you so that like the indicator lights on a dashboard as we go through it, you're going to go, wow, wow, John, look, I can't believe. You can't not read this gospel without coming to a conclusion of who we thought this baby, this child, in a manger was. You see, John, when he um, wrote this gospel, was not sending it out. He didn't put the verses and the chapters in. A lot of times people don't realize these were things that were added much later. He wrote it so that you would read it, so that when you get to the end of it, you would go, whoa! And you would get to that very end, and, and you would read what he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not recorded in this book. In in a sense, John is basically saying, I've selected and edited from all the things that Jesus did, choosing as carefully as I can the many different and countless things that Jesus did so that I could allow for you to see as best you can with your mind and combined with your emotions so that your will and primarily your heart would come to a revelation of what I have seen and touched and experienced and you would know that this God is here for you. And he comes in Jesus. So then verse... 31, he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one God was sent, the one anointed, full of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Not intellectual assent, but by placing your life and your concerns and your fears and your dreams and your hopes into this person, Jesus, you would follow him, and as you follow him, the very life that he experienced, the very way that he lived, And the way that he personally revealed it, it would be yours. And you would walk with the Father in the way that Jesus did. You would walk with Jesus in the same way. And you could go through this life with an understanding of the fullness of life and the light of God revealing your path as you walk with him. So, what are those three indicators that that John seems to point to us as being the deity of Jesus? And and so, bear with me. For some, you're going to go, oh, this is a little too much. But, you know, I hope you can stay with me. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the part we're looking at this week. We've looked at these other parts. But here, the Word was God. And three indicators as you go through here. He speaks about in the beginning. So here's the three indicators. The preexistence. Jesus preexisted which is one of the indicators of a person who's going to claim they're God or someone's going to claim that they are a God, they, they better exist before creation itself. And then he goes on, and, and, and the word was God, or was with God. This idea that he coexisted as one of the Trinity, as one person among this God. And then the last part is that he self-existed. He was God. This idea of a sadi, this idea that he was self-initiating and self-sustaining. Those things, if you can look at that, John kind of goes in. If, that's, if you can look at those three things, then you pretty much have God in flesh. Right? So follow along with me. Uh, and I know this is stuff that is revealed in your heart. 
I could prove to you all the things John's saying. You could say, yeah, but how can you trust John? Well, you can go back and trust and look at to see whether he's trustworthy. You can do all the work to find out whether this is true. But just grant it as if, as, as if this is a true, accurate writing and see what he has to say. Jesus, the Word, is your God in every way you can conceive of God, he says. He pre-exists, he co-exists, and he self-exists. Jesus, the word pre-exists. We will never have time, honestly, to look at all of this, and so we're going to pull out some of the things in John's gospel, specifically around this pre-existence. You'll see it as we talk about other parts of the coexisting part, but it, you'll look at this indicator light as it begins in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word. He was with God in the beginning. The same way Genesis starts, in the beginning, and he talks about God creating. John 1, 3 continues to take it a little bit further. He says, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And he's alluding back to Proverbs 8, verses 27 and 30. A good Jewish person who had read the Old Testament would understand that, that God was called the wisdom of God. And they would recall this passage of scripture in, in Proverbs 8, where in verse 27 it says, I was there when he established the heavens and formed the great springs and the depths of the ocean. I was there when he set limits of the seas and gave them his instructions not to spread beyond their boundaries. I was there when he made the blueprint of the earth and the oceans. I was a craftsman at his side. It was a constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence. And how happy I was with what he created, his wide world and all his family of mankind. Now, what was really interesting, in the Greek mind, they talk about the word, this word logos. I didn't share this in the first service, it just came to me right now. But it, what's interesting is, is he was this reason, he was this, they, they couldn't see this wisdom and this word of God in, in any way. It was so pure that it had to have emanations, which is kind of what some of those thoughts were on this Greek thought. That when Augustine, who was a, a number of years later in the fourth century, was reading and it was coming to a place of faith, when he picked, picked up and read the book of John and read the first chapter and the first verse, and he read verse 14, he, for the first time, being steeped in Greek philosophy, understanding the logos, the principle of the universe that created things, he realized for the first time, this pre-existing Jesus, this Jesus was the word that came and created and entered into history. John states the word Jesus, also the wisdom of God, as it was revealed to Proverbs and to, to Solomon in Proverbs. It was the beginning of the beginnings, not created, never began, always was, helping to create this world. Jesus preexisted. But not only did the Apostle John make this claim, not only did John the Baptist, he made it as well. Verse 15, as you come through this prologue, John testified concerning him, he cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who came after me has surpassed me. He's greater than me. Because he was before me. Well, we know in history that he wasn't born before him. So it's very clear when he's saying, I was this pointer light to the real light, he came after me. And he came before me. He's again speaking of the preexistence. And you might be saying, well, that's really interesting. John can make this claim, and John the Baptist, the apostle, and John the Baptist can make these claims. But what's really interesting is you continue to pull this thread throughout the gospel. Jesus makes this claim all the time. John 8, 53. Verses 57 and 59. And John 8 is all about who's your daddy, you know, who's your, who's your father. You know, we follow Abraham, and Abraham was related to the father in heaven. He was the father of all nations, and, we, and we're specifically this nation, and, and who's your dad? And so they say in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are, Jesus. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Because Jesus was making this claim. 
And then Jesus in verse 58 says, very truly I say to you, truly, truly. You know this idea, sometimes we think about, you know, truly, truly, as if, as if when you, someone says to you, now I'm going to really tell you the truth. I'm going to be really honest with you. Like, oh, you mean you haven't been before? You ever get that? That's not what Jesus is doing. You know, like, I'm going to be really honest with you. No, what he's saying is, here's something that is so true, so core to what's true. I just want you to know this is the truth of the truth of the truth. You can bank on it. You can believe in it. And when he makes those kind of statements, the next thing he says is really important. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And you know this wasn't something that made them real happy. He's claiming preexistence himself. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I was uh, preparing for this, and one of the individuals who um, writes on this is Ravi Zacharias, and some of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias, a great apologist, a man who has just got this worldwide platform, international platform, and I knew of Ravi Zacharias years ago because he, he actually went to the seminary I went to. He went to Trinity Seminary. He was there before me. He's a little bit older than me. But anyway, he went there before me, and, and my father was president of that seminary. And, and, and Ravi came to... My dad, at one point, and said, you know what, I'm going to have to leave school. I don't have enough funds. So I think it was in his first year, his, middle, his first year before his middle year. And I'm going to have to leave. And my dad, aware of the intellectual prowess of this man, said, no, you aren't. And he went out and he found people just like you and me, and he raised scholarship money to keep them in. Your gifts make a difference in this kingdom. Your gifts you give to this church make a difference as we support the school or as you give scholarship money to certain individuals. So this guy writes. He's just had a great impact. He writes, Why Jesus? In, in one of his books, he says, as they're, they're talking about the different truths of Jesus, about the purity of Jesus, he also then talks about the call of Jesus. And he says, um, they, the way many founders understood the call is different. So different in the sense of the origin that, and call that by Islam's own account, okay, Here's Muhammad. When Muhammad first claimed to have received revelations, he was confused and not sure what it meant. It was others who told Muhammad that this could be the voice of God speaking to him. Jesus, writes Ravi, on the other hand, knew exactly who he was and from whence he came. Jesus did not begin his mission by leaving more comfortable surroundings in order to gain enlightenment so that he would find the answer to life's mysteries, which is the origin of Buddhism. He did not come to give a certain group of people ethnic worth so that they too could have an identity as others around them did, which is the origins of Islam. He did not give any people reason to boast of particular privilege because of the age of their culture or their perceived strength of their society's cohesion. Virtually all pantheistic cultures, Hinduism and others included, pride themselves on how long they have been in existence. He did not come to affirm a people who boasted in the strength of their military power as the citizens of Rome did in claiming their city to be the eternal city. He did not come to compliment the Greeks for their intellectual prowess, their great philosophical minds. And catch this, in fact, he did not even come to exalt a culture because it was the recipient of God's moral law, a boast Israel, the Hebrews, delighted in. His strong and unequivocal claim was that heaven was his dwelling and earth was his footstool. There never was a time when he was not. There will never be a time when he will not be. He's positing a truth from an eternal perspective that uniquely positioned him. Jesus preexisted. He claimed to be God. And that's what John's doing in here. Ravi just put it in those words. But not only does he preexist, 
but we see that the word coexist, which is really important when we think about the idea of God being two persons in one, this whole idea of Trinity. And, and, and that's a mind-blowing concept in and of itself. But in verse 1, he says the word was with God. And remember, we spoke about this last week, and you weren't hearing that message. It's about this preposition that he uses, with God, was a very unique preposition, which was coming into usage in koine, or what they call common Greek. But when a Greek person would read this word pros, it means to or toward. And so the idea is he was with God, or he was actually toward God. He was to God. His, his relationship with God was such of a community of love that there was never any time in their existence that they turned their back against each other, and they were upset, and they, oh, I can't believe you created it that way. Or, what did you do? You, you let down on that project when we were, you know, Never. He was toward God, moving together toward one another. And, and the whole reason he was with God is so he could teach us. He could live with us so that we could learn to be toward one another in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, that we would bring this towardness toward one another. That we as a church, even as we work through some of these issues, I praise God, he brings it to the surface so that we can turn toward one another, not have backs towards one another, that God can call us into this continual communal place of being toward and with. Amen? So John introduces the truth. The pre-existent word is also the coexisting word, specifically in the beginning. But now at this time, if you read the second verse, you know, and then it says that he was with God and he was God. And then he uses a preposition. He was with God in the beginning. So he wants to make it very clear to us who this word is. He's a personal being. So that if you go down to verse 14, he explains it a little bit further in the prologue. And he says, the word, the one who coexists with God, became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is this trinity explained in more detail in the prologue. Now, I'm really excited about this. Okay. You have to put your seatbelts on because we're going to fly through this. But if you don't understand this, you will not understand some of the depth of John's gospel. No other book or gospel as eloquently as John's describes this coexistence. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, and I should just say this, and didn't say this again in the first service, but he, it describes this father-son relationship because, you know, I often, when I counsel with people, I said, I always ask people, well, so if this was your daughter, how would you want her treated as a perfect mom? I will often put myself in that position, you know what, as a dad, how would I want to be treated as a son by a perfect father? Isn't that neat that God revealed him as a father-son relationship, that he reveals himself to you in that sense of a father-daughter, that he, you are a child of his? And so as you go through this, listen to what he says. So in verse chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 16 to 17, so because Jesus was doing these things in the, on the Sabbath, I mean, he was doing things like, you know, I think people around him would say, just wash your hands before you go in, and you'd have a lot less problem with people. Quit taking green and eating like that. But he was, he was bringing something new by the Spirit, which ticked people off. So he goes and he says they were having problems with him because of the things he was doing on the south. So the Jewish leaders began to persecute them. They hated him because they were, he was actually exposing their self-rightness. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I'm also working, too, working for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Now, John 5, go to chapter 6, verse 43 through 47, beginning actually in 41. At this time, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? What's this about? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. <laughs> what guts? Anyway, uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. And so here, you know, Jesus, John wasn't twisting what the prophets said. Jesus was pointing to what the prophets said. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Because our teaching is the same, because we're the same. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And now Jesus continues teaching in chapter 6. At a certain point, even his own disciples, many of his own followers, it says in verse 60 of chapter 6, said this is a hard teaching. Then verse 66, a little bit later, from this time, many of his own followers stopped following him. Because Jesus, the preexistent one, was making it very clear that he was also the coexistent one in relationship to his father as a son in the Trinity. John 7, verses 28 through 31. Then Jesus, still reading, teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I came from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. I just, you know, practically, I just want to say to you folks, one of the great things of, of being in relationship with Jesus and, and knowing his love and, and knowing his presence and, 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 and opening your heart to him and, and allowing your sin to be exposed so his truth can be, begin to flow through and you can begin to walk with him and, 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 and you begin to rest in him. I, you know what's so cool? A number of years back when I used to have a little bit of a fear of flying in a plane, there was a certain point where I just, it just hit me. His hour hadn't come. I kind of felt like, well, if I'm one of his sons, I walk in that identity, then I, then I don't have to worry. So I'd get on a plane, and I, I one time kidded to someone next to me, I go, you know, this plane's not going down, I don't think, because, you know, I don't think my time's yet to come. And, he, and I started talking a little bit about this, but primarily, when I sit on a plane, I go, you know what, if God wants it to go down, then it's my time. There is no one who can touch me. Because if you go on and you read, you read this again and again, it says his hour hadn't come. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. But if I, because I'm not alone, look at John 8, verses 16 through 20. I stand with the Father who sent me, it is your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other's witness is the Father who sent me. And, and, and in that day, in the law, you have to have two witnesses. And, and so Jesus makes this incredibly important point. He says, I have two witnesses, me and Dad. Wait a second. No, me and Dad. That's another claim to being one with God. And then they asked him, where's your father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also, because we're just the, we're the same. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where he, the offerings were put. Yet no one sees him, because his hour had not yet come. I just want you to rest and not worry. Nothing can touch you. And unless God permits it, if he permits it, he's doing something in you or he's doing something through you in that testing to redeem and to do something in the life of others. So go live your life. Relax. One of the implications of the fact that Jesus is God is that he's got his hand on your life. 
You're, your son, you're, you're the son or daughter of the king. You know what's attacked here? You need to understand what's being attacked here is the identity of Jesus. That's what's attacked throughout this whole thing. You know when Jesus dies on the cross, what do they put over his head? King of Jews. What was the reason for his being accused and for his being put in that cross? It's because he blasphemed, he claimed to be God. Well, Satan will attack you all the time and is your identity. He's going to come to you all the time and go, you know what, you're not a son, you're not a child. How in the world, for you to think that God's going to care for you? You've blown it so much, you think God really loves you? He's attacking your identity. It's, It's an old trick, he uses it all the time. You think God's going to give you some revelation and some understanding, some light into your heart and your soul? You think God even is going to change some things that have been so crooked or bent in your life? that, that you? Because look at what you've done. There, and, he, and he's attacking your identity. Of course he is. He loves me. You and I can face anything in life because we know that as we go through it, we're the child of God. And because we're in that identity, just as the identity of Jesus is being attacked all the time, so also expect to be attacked. If he can get you out of that place, you're going to be ripe for all kinds of attack. So, isn't that good stuff? Anyway, so John 10. And, and I say that because it's just in God's word. I mean, this, I'm just telling you what God has to say. I am the Father, and I and the Father are one, John 10. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. You know, I've done all these miracles. I've done all these good things. You see my heart. You see the purity. You see how I keep working, and I keep doing these good things. And as you look at these good things, he goes, so what are you kind of condemning me for? Why do you got stones in your hand? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You claim this identity. In Jesus, the word self exists. Go back to verse 1. It says, in the word was God. If coexistence points to the Trinity and self-existence then points to the truth that in the very nature of Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, this child, is God. Hard to understand sometimes because of the humility of our God who would become a child. But this God who became a child, this, this man Jesus, was fully God, but in his humility said, I'm not going to grab those things because I need to do something that can only be done in your life by becoming like this. And yet it doesn't diminish in any way the fullness of who he is. It doesn't in any way hinder who he is in his fullness by becoming a child. He's not just some divine force, folks. He is the self-initiating, self-sustaining. The word aseity is what they use in, in theological terms. He just is. Pre-existing, co-existing, self-existing. Which is what the Council of Chalcedon was all about at one point where they declared that in Christ there are two natures, each retaining its own properties, together united in one subsistence, which is the word hypostasis, which was in, in, in theological terms is called the hypostatic union or for a better lay term it's called the mystical union. And the word mystical is really good here because the precise nature of this union defies our our finite comprehension. You tell me how both God, fully God, and Jesus, fully man, can exist together, and you're God. It's just a mystery at a certain point. 
that is beyond our mental ability to understand. It requires a will, and it requires a revelation from God's Spirit. And I know even as I'm speaking to some through some of the things that have said, when you feel that burning in your heart, that's Jesus coming through the Holy Spirit, bringing revelation because he's moving you to a new place. He's opening your mind to something new. We so box Jesus in. We just think we can put him in a little box. He isn't in a little box. Not necessarily everything you've been taught in Sunday school is really who Jesus is. Everything that it tells us in his word is true. But the word became flesh, and in Jesus is life. And you have to continually go to the Spirit of God to understand his word so you might understand the fullness of who Jesus is for you. And so, buckle your seatbelts again because we're going to fly through this. In the prologue, he uses a number of terms to express his self-existence, and then he strings this through the rest of the gospel. He talks about the word, and we've talked already about that, but he doesn't use that again through the rest of the gospel. He says it in 1 John, he talks about the word of life, but in Revelation 19, 13, where he once again, John is writing this last book of the Bible, it says he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. He is the creative reason, power, expression of God. And then verse 4, he talks about the life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It's not the word bias, which we get biology, physical life. He's not talking about physical life. He's talking about the essence of life, what gives you breath, what gives you the ability to live. Not just to live, just a life that meager, get, I'm going to get through this. If I can just get through this, so I get someday to heaven, maybe I can just bear it all. No, he wants you to have life now in its fullness. He wants you to live the life he lived. He wants you to walk in peace. He wants you to know joy. He wants you to experience love with your closest to you. He wants you to move to a place of humility so his fullness can move through you. So he says he's alive. And then in John 11, he says, at one point, I'm the resurrection of life. As Lazarus dies, they go, if you could have been here earlier. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm the resurrection of life. That's a weird term to call yourself. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies physically. For whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he just asked, do you believe this? Quit worrying about, well, am I going to make it? Your hand, your, God's hour is on you. You can live this life and you should live this life because of the fact that this life of God is flowing in and through you and his life and his hand is on you. So choose joy, walk in peace. Your God is not out to try and punish you. He's not trying to hurt you. Your God wants you to be all that you can be. Your God wants this church to be all that it can be. He is so willing to expose the deepest of our sins and the strains and the habits that create difficulties because he wants us living in a toward life. And only humble people, only people who seek and want God for all of their hearts. They have a vision of what it means to live this life and then they intend with everything in their life to do it and then they choose the means by which to do it, which is Jesus, and Jesus shows us how to do this. He's called the light, verse 5 through 9. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him... All might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a flashlight. I mean, no, a witness to the light. 
Because verse 9, listen, the true light, the genuine light, the light that reveals and gives wisdom and understanding, that light gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so in chapter 8, specifically in verse 12, at one point Jesus makes this claim. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Hey, grab your seatbelts again because we're flying through this. He calls himself the bread, John 6, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm the gate, John 10, 7. I am, therefore, Jesus said very truly, here's something you can bank on. I am the gate for the sheep. And if you're one of my sheep, I'm the way in. Not one of them, I'm the way in. I'm God in flesh. I'm the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. You have to understand, all these things he's using, these terms of I am, all these I am terms of good shepherd, gate, the vine, all these things are rich history in the Old Testament. They understood exactly what he was proclaiming. There was no confusion. I'm the resurrection of life. I read that just a moment ago. Now, honestly, I haven't really even touched on all the stuff that if you read through this points to the fact that Jesus is God. So we're going to go a little bit faster and the lights are going to flash a little faster, okay? John purposely uses the number seven throughout this gospel. He talks about seven signs. There's seven discourses. He, he goes on and talks about seven poor, important I am statements because the number seven was important not only to the Jewish world but to the ancient Near Eastern world. It was this idea of fullness and completion. It was a sense of, of, of a divine number. It was that in this seven, it was a way of talking about God being here. So as you go through this, he talks about seven signs. He only has seven miracles, and the miracles, all of them are these, these done. He, and he finishes with the seventh being the raising of Lazarus, but he waits and he gives you one more, which he explains the whole from chapter 13 on, the whole death and the resurrection of Jesus. The eighth miracle was the resurrection of Jesus. This idea of God now appearing in a new way. He came in the fullness. You see the resurrection of Lazarus, but now you see the resurrection of Jesus because they knew he created the world in seven days, and the eighth day was a new beginning. They knew that there were seven days in a new beginning. They knew on the eighth day a child was circumcised because in that circumcision, there was not just a physical birth. They were talking about a spiritual connection that happened to God. He is basically saying something new has happened in Jesus. God in flesh is here. Seven discourse. He talks about new birth, water of life, divine son, bread of life, life-giving spirit, light of the world, good shepherd. He talks about seven important I am sayings, and I've said them. I am the bread of life, light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. He says all these I am's purposely. He even uses some other I am sayings that they were very well aware of. One time, um, Moses sees God in this burning bush, and he's told to go back to Egypt to free all the people, to go to Pharaoh. And at one point, Moses goes, but who, who in the world, what name can I give them that they'll be afraid? And God says, go tell them I am sent you. And so if you read in chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus is walking in the water. He's approaching his disciples who are straining at the oars. And to their question, who goes there? In the Greek, it says, Jesus simply says, it is, I am. Chapter 8, verses 57 through 59, Jesus claims to exist before Abraham. We read that just a moment ago. Before Abraham was born, I am. 13, verse 19, at the Last Supper, Jesus predicts who's betrayed, and then he says, I'm going to tell you this ahead of time so that you can know when it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe. And in the Greek, it says that I am. John 18, 5 through 6, when the guards come to get Jesus, they ask, and Jesus asks them, who is it you want? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, in little Greek, Jesus says to them, I am. 
We translate it in here, it is I. The Greek is I am. And it says that in that meeting, the disciple, those guards drew back and fell to the ground. Which is whenever there's a revelation of the true God, you have to fall. So I had a whole bunch of implications and we're not going to share them because I've been sharing them throughout the message in the same way. But one is when you come before Jesus and you really believe the identity of who he is, he's God, you have to bow. Thomas Jefferson loved the moral Jesus. He loved the fact that Jesus was a good teacher, which puts you in a position to go, I like this teaching, I don't like this teaching. He went through and took a, a, a razor and he cut out all the things he didn't like. And he made, and you can see this. He actually, you can read this for yourself. You can actually see it. He has this Bible of moral sayings. But here's the problem. If Jesus is God, you can't pick and choose. If you are in a place of sin and you know it in your heart and it's displeasing to God, it's not a matter of, well, I want to do this. Jesus has a claim on your life. If he's calling you to repent, it's not a matter of why I like to do that. It's like every person comes and bows before the child. And when it comes to just bowing, there's also the idea of a servant. You are ser- he calls us to serve. He asks us to join in ministry with him. I, I remember when I read, anybody read Lord of the Flies? You know that book where these kids are on this place and they're all by themselves? And I remember when I was reading it in high school, I just kept thinking, could a parent show up? Right? We look at our world and all the chaos and all the junk that's going on, and we could, could a parent show up? And Jesus is that one. And as he shows up, he comes to clean things up and to serve. He serves us to save us. And then he says, not only bow to me, but I ask you to use your life to serve me. Use your gifts. You all have gifts. Use them to serve me. What, what servant stands before the king and goes, well, you know, I like the table setting thing. I'll do that, but I'm not cleaning the, you know, the toilets. You do it, the king says. You do what Jesus calls you to do. And the last is this. Not only do we bow, do we serve and join with him in this great cleanup operation, but we rest. Because he's in charge. You can rest. I'm going to ask the team if they'd come and lead us in worship.